So 52, starting at verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. For we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that has led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When he makes his soul an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, He shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Let me pray. Oh, Father, please grant us a deeper understanding of your word and of the power of it. Please work in it, in us mightily through it. For, Father, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I've titled this Problem Solved. You'll see why. 
as a teenager, um, my parents aren't Christians. And in fact, none of my family are Christians. I think I've told you my testimony a bit before. But um, when I did my paper round early in the morning, I remember walking up the road, Witten's Lane near our place, and I'd praying, God, if you're there, help me to find you. God, if you... I did that for months. God, help me to find you. Because I realised how futile life was. You know, we're just going to end up in a pine box one day. God, if you're there, help me to find you. Well, I started reading the Bible. And uh, I found out there was a God all right. But I had a new problem. How would a holy God like that ever accept me? That's a good problem to have. To at least know that you're dealing with a holy God and you're not holy. So that was my problem way back then. I didn't realise at the time that that was my problem. But um, as you saw in Isaiah chapter 1, um, Isaiah himself picks up this problem right at the start. He says, though your sins be as scarlet, we sang it this morning, they shall be what? I'm going to get you to interact with me a bit this morning because it's in my blood. What They shall be... And they, you know, how are you going to pull that off? How are you going to do that? He doesn't explain how, but he says that's what's going to happen. And then on Isaiah 6, Isaiah himself sees God, and what does he realise about himself? He's a man of unclean lips. And he lives among a people of unclean lips. And God does this little ceremony with him where he takes a coal and puts it to his lips and there's a way to just show him that he's been cleansed, that he can operate with the holy God. By the time you get to chapter 40, um, it's comfort, comfort my people. Though your sins are many, they've been paid for. So God is dealing with this problem, but he hasn't said exactly how yet. And from chapter 40 to 53, or to 50, that, that, this section, exactly 40 to 50 in particular, he has these conversations going. One of the conversations, as you know, you've already had three of them, are the servant songs that explain about this servant who's going to come, this true Israel. And we get three of them. Sort of, and the conversations are a bit like me chatting with my wife. You know, we, you pick up, you might have half a dozen conversations going and you pick up one from two days ago. You think, oh, yes, I know what we're talking about. And you just... Because that's the way he does it in Isaiah 40 through 50. He has these different conversations, but they all interact with each other. One of the conversations is the servant song. What you may or may not have picked up on is that there is, right back in chapter 40, he says, uh, because he knows that they're, going to go to, that they're going to go into exile to Babylon, how are they going to know that the Babylonian idols aren't the true God? How are they going to know? Because Babylon looks fantastic. How are they going to know? It's powerful, huge walls. They, they defeated Yahweh, so it looks. How do they know who is the living, true God? And so through 40, through 50, you'll have seen, 
God bagging out the people, those that make the idols. You know, they carve the wood and burn half of it and they worship the other half. You know, that kind of stuff. And he really he gets into them. But he, what he, one of the things he does 12 times, I mentioned this to Nathan last time, 12 times he brings out what he can do that they can't, that's relevant to the people in Babylon. Because they're not back in Jerusalem, they're just uh, under this, you know, they're in exile. How can they know that they've got the real deal? How do you know that you've got the real deal? The living God. How do you know? The certain, absolute certain. One thing. God only uses one thing. Do you know what it is? And he keeps saying it. I can, they can't. Let me read to you. From chapter 41. And he says to, uh, he challenges the the, the, uh, all, all the other peoples of the world. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the King of Jacob. Prove that you're God. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider, that we may know and know their outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's. Then he says, do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing. And your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. That's chapter 41, 22-24. He does that 12 times in those passages. Just short bits and long bits, but that's one of the bigger ones. Okay, so what is the thing that God gives them that helps them know that he alone is God? What is it? What can he do that they can't? Did you pick it? He says it a few times. He tells them, tell us the former things and tell us what's going to happen. Tell us where you've done that in the past, where you said what's going to happen, and then we say, oh yeah, I remember you said you're going to do that, and then it's happened. What is it? Foretelling. Only God can tell the future. You got that? See, that is the reinforcement in the concrete of your faith. You must get that. God's given it to us, to you and to me, so that we know absolutely that we are dealing with what is true. Only God can tell the future. And in our passage today, the fourth servant song, he absolutely blows our mind with it. He goes into so much detail. But please understand, he doesn't just do the sacrifice bit, he tells us 600 years ahead of time. Why does he do that? So that you and I know for absolute certain we are dealing with ultimate truth in our exile. The rest of the world may not take any notice of it, but it doesn't change the fact that there's a living God and he said ahead of time. Please get that. It's the Rio in your faith. Concrete without Rio under pressure, what happens? It breaks. You can't tell. 
It's when you put the concrete under pressure. It's still reinforcing in your faith. So God's provided it for you. And he does it all the time. What did he say to the disciples? Jesus said to the disciples he's, as he's heading on the way to Jerusalem. Three times, he, what does he do? What's going to happen to me? That's the usual God pattern. He knew what was going to happen and he tells them ahead of time. That's what God does. That's his modus operandi. All right, I just want to drive that one home. So he spends, he he repeats that in those 40 to 50. He repeats it 12 times to help get us ready for it. And he has, he gives some other ones too. He tells them about Cyrus, you know, how they're going to get, go back to Jerusalem. They're going to be in new exile. But then he comes in with the ultimate solution to our problem. All right. Now, this is a very famous passage, isn't it? You'll know it from uh, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Ethiopian eunuchs in his chariot heading home. And what's he reading from? Isaiah 53. It's a famous passage. It's also, by the way, it's the turning point in the book of Isaiah. He's been building up to this point, And there's a, t- a change, you'll see, next in the next chapters. This is the, the uh, pivotal turning point. Now, in our passage today... There's a, uh, there's a story, a storyline in it. And the first part of the story, with, as we think about it, the first part of the story is an overview or a summary. That's the last three verses of chapter 52. So just get that rock solid in your head. That part is an introduction and a quick overview. And we'll, we're going to go through it in detail in a minute. Then we have a storyline that runs through 53. But we don't just have a storyline. We have a, um, the attitudes. There's a commentary on the attitudes of those in the story or those who are involved. That's kind of handy, isn't it? So you've got what's happening in the story, but you've also got what's happening inside people's heads. And thirdly, you've got the purpose. The purpose for the suffering in the story. And it's not once or twice or three times. Guess how many times? Twelve. Twelve times. But he does, and it, you, you'd read it and you think, oh, yes, it's said it twelve. We're going to count them. All right? Because he wants to hit home, this is the main point, obviously, of the text. What he is, how he is solving the particular problem of how does a holy God deal with a sinful people? All right. Now, context. So we've got our, our overall context of the uh, the importance of the passage. This is the fourth of the um, servant songs. You've got the importance of foretelling in prophecy, not just prophecy as such. So when you use Prophecy, prophets give messages, but prophets also foretell. It's the foretelling bit that I've been, as, as where we're at today. All right, so let's have a look at the storyline, <coughs> starting in, uh, in our summary in our in, <coughs> excuse me, fifty-two, the last three verses. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. We're going to have a servant coming. 
and he's going to be wise. Kind of like Solomon. And then he shall be high and lifted up. Now that's an enigmatic statement, if ever there was one. As I'm glad Nathan read this morning. How Jesus told how he was going to die. He was going to be lifted up. And shall be exalted. There is going to be a positive outcome. There is going to be, at the end of this story, he is going to be on top. He's humbled, now he's exalted. 14, and as many as were astonished to you, his appearance is so smashed up. That doesn't speak of the... the main point that's going to happen in the story is this going to it doesn't not going to look very pretty is it so smashed up that this servant won't even look human verse 15 so he shall sprinkle many nations that's a hint of the actual purpose of that suffering The sprinkling here refers to the kind of sprinkling they do on purifying the altar. Pick up that word purification. It is going to somehow, what this servant is doing is going to somehow bring about some kind of purification. And then the message that is, that kings are going to shut their mouths because when they told and they, when this message comes to them, they're going to see it and they're going to be able to understand it. It's a fairly difficult bit. I'm not exactly sure how that all works. But uh, it's tied to the first verse of chapter 53. Not many people are necessarily going to believe the message. You see, the message is going to be that the big message that's going to help people, that's going to save people, is the message about this servant. And who's believed it? Do you know that's that's quoted New Testament? Not many people believe it. Because part of it is to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? You see, to for, to actually understand something, who is it that helps you to understand? God does. And he reveals what his arm has accomplished. That's, that's what, the, what the arm of the Lord means, what he's, he's accomplished with his arm. How has it been revealed? God actually does the revealing. All right, now we actually start the story about the, the servant. He grew up. It wasn't a very uh, promising area to grow up in. It wasn't uh, in a hothouse of any kind and uh, not well watered and he certainly wasn't a hunk to look at and uh, so he didn't have that attractive form. The Bible's very strong in that kind of stuff, you know. When you talk talks about um, uh, Saul, King Saul, he was... And Adonijah is his son. They were real lookers, you know. They talk said they were most handsome men. And talk about women, the Job's three daughters. You know, they were the stunners. 
So the Bible doesn't mind talking about that kind of how a person looks. In fact, when David was chosen out of the 12 sons, um, <clears throat> the prophet was told, that, no, it's not that one. You can't tell by the way they look. But it, we see here that the servant was not a looker. He didn't draw people to himself. In fact, precisely the opposite of the case, he was despised in verse 3. Publicly not popular. People hid their face from him. Despised. And he was not esteemed, verse 3. That is not... You know, we, 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 we each have an estimation of other people, don't we? And some people are high in our estimation and some aren't. Well, he, um, in verse 3, comes, does not come up in people's estimation. Now, I'm going to skip from verse 3 because 4 to 6 is actually part of the explanation, the reason why. Skip down to verse 7. The story continues. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, but he didn't open his mouth. Now, to be oppressed is to be treated unjustly. That is what is true. You know, if you're clearly, you're not done anything wrong, but people are out to get you, that's oppression. Because it's mentioned twice in verse 7 and verse 8. How did he respond? Like a lamb led to the slaughter, he didn't say a word. Like a sheep before its shearers. It's an amazing scripture, isn't it? I don't need to uh, tell you who who to remind you of. That's um, pretty self-evident, isn't it? But I want you to see what the text says, because it's important to see what the, the text says. Verse 8, was he treated justly? No. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And what happened to him in verse 8? What does it mean to be cut off out of the land of the living? Killed. That's a long way of saying it. Removed from the land of the living, you're no longer living. You're dead. And after you're dead, what happens? Verse 9. Well, you get buried. It's quite a storyline. Very exciting, isn't it? Doesn't it? Hard story. And of course, there's those extra couple of details like the grave with the wicked. And we know um, someone who suffered that way with two wicked people who were clearly knew they were wicked. And with a rich man. Well, we know of our particular... We know the answer to that one too. What kind of tomb he was... uh, Our Lord Jesus was buried in. A rich man's tomb. But still staying with what is about the servant here... The emphasis in verse 9 was he's, he's dead and he's buried, but is he guilty? He is not guilty in two ways. Firstly, what he does, he does no violence. 
So in his actions, he's innocent. And what about his mouth? No deceit. Utterly honest. Just integrity, double plus. Alright, but the story continues. If you look at the second part of verse 10, when he, after he makes his soul an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. What's happened? What has happened? I thought he was dead, buried. How can he see his offspring? A dead person doesn't see. How can he prolong his days? How can it, what's happened? Isn't it clear? Look at the resurrection right there. You may not realise that. Resurrection is clear as a bell in Isaiah 53. And it'll come out in the last verse as well. He should prolong his days. Verse 11, he sh- out of the anguish of his soul, what he's after what he's been through, he shall see again. Dead people don't see. He's not dead, he's living. Not only is shall he see, he will be satisfied. We'll discuss that shortly. And finally, in verse 12, is the, is the rewards that he experiences because in our storyline. So did you see the storyline? Got that? It's a hard one, but it's a one, well, it's not hard to follow, but it's his whole life is there in a package, in a nutshell. And the wonderful ending of his glory at the end. Let's consider now the, the commentary. Excuse me. How do people feel about him from verse 3? What's the attitude of the participants here? Despised and rejected. Okay, so we got a little, we're doing a little English analysis here. How, how each person felt. The people, they didn't like him very much. They didn't esteem him. Verse 4. In fact, they thought he was being punished by God from verse 4. He was smitten by God. Obviously he's done something wrong. We don't know what. But they thought, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. And verse 8 picks up the same thing. As for his generation, what did the people think about him? They thought, well, he'd been, he, when he was killed, he's been cut off out of the land of the living. But they didn't get what the, uh, the writer Isaiah is saying here. They did not, it didn't occur to them that he was stricken for the transgression of my people. When they were crucifying him, they had no idea that that's what was happening. Got that? That's from verse 8. So that's how the people took, you know, how they evaluated things. All right, what about Yahweh? God's attitude. Is God's attitude in this passage? It is. Verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to bruise him. 
He has put him to grief. Now there's a statement for you. So you've got the will of the people, now you've got, what does God think about it? Yep, we're going to smash this guy even though we know he's innocent. It was God's will to do it. Isn't that it? I want you to really get a hold of it because this is such an important text. God wanted it to happen. And part of where you see that not only expressed in words, it was his will to put him to grief. Go back to verse 6. Or we're like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him. Who laid it on him? The Lord. It was God's will to crush him. It was God's will to lay the punishment for our sin on this servant. Got that? It's God's will. This is what the passage is teaching. Or prophesied 600 years beforehand. At least... What about the servant's attitude? Is the servant's attitude in there? Because he's the main participant. How does he feel about it? Well, just a lovely verse, verse 11a, the first part. Because after he's been through it all, it says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and what? Be satisfied. And like at the end of a movie, when the heroes are finally honoured, there's that satisfaction of knowing it was worth it all. So the servant is going to, he looks at what he's accomplished and he's satisfied. Isn't that beautiful? I like the old old um, old RSV. Is it? He shall see the fruit of the travail of his soul and be satisfied. You know what that fruit is? You know what that fruit is? I'm looking at it. You and I are that fruit. He saved his people. We are the fruit of the travail of his soul. Besides obeying his father and showing his father he loved the father, we are the fruit. And how does he feel about it all? Is he happy? He's happy. He is satisfied. So there's the the commentary that our passage gives us on what different ones feel about feel about what's happened finally we come to the reason behind the servant's suffering and uh, this is just amazing because it turns out to be the solution to our problem how a holy God can welcome sinners and he does it in 12 different ways. So let's work through them and see if we can pick them. There are uh, 
2 in verse 4 of chapter 53. Now what we're looking for is him for us. Him for us. So first of all he says, surely he has borne, he has borne our griefs. Number one. Consequences of our sin, we, this grief. And carried our sorrows. Number two. He carried the results of our sinfulness, grief and sorrow. We thought God was punishing him for something that he'd done. But verse 5 says wrong. Verse 5, and this is where we get, but. Who was he pierced for? Our sins. How many times does it come out in verse 5? But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment of our peace. And with his stripes we are healed. Four times in one verse. Saying the same thing. Him for us. Him for us. Get that? Not lovely? It's just... So we're up to number six now. Then the key verse for the, uh, the whole passage, if you want to memorise a verse, it's worth learning. Isaiah 53, 6. Because it gives the picture of, about humanity. It ties the whole thing together. All we these sheep have gone, what? Astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. What's that called? Sin. All right? So this is the big picture of humanity. All we like sheep have gone astray, we turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the solution to our problem. That was number seven, by the way. We've got five to go. Because we don't want to miss what he's saying in this chapter. Why? How God is accomplishing the greatest thing. In fact, this is tied, this is all about the greatest event that ever happens in history. And so is it any wonder, when you think about it, if you're God and you want to get ready for your son coming, then you're going to do all sorts of stuff to help get ready so that when he comes people will understand what he has done. He's going to set up all sorts of things. He's going to send Abraham, the, very, the, the, the father of us all, spiritually. And he's going, to send, he's going to build up his faith to the point where he can take a trip to what is going to become Jerusalem, to Mount Moriah, and offer up his only son. What did he do that for? He's getting ready for his son coming. He sets up the whole priestly system to help us to understand. Getting ready for his son to come. And so is it any wonder that we have a passage like Isaiah 52 or 53 that expresses exactly what God's doing, but he does it over 600 years in advance. What's he doing? He's making the, re- the steel reinforcing for our faith so that we know we have the absolute truth. Alright, so we were up to um, verse 6, the, the key verse 
of the passage. Next one, look at verse 8. The people thought he was, uh, didn't understand what was happening, but he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for who? For what? Transgressions of my people. That's number number eight. Stricken for the transgressions of my people. Now this one's number one and number ten. The ninth one is hidden in verse ten. But you have to understand a little bit about sacrificial practice. What sacrifices are about. It says, when he makes his soul an offering for guilt. What's happening there? You see, as in Romans 3, it says God is presenting his son as a sacrifice that will remove our guilt. Once again, him for us. Paul picks up precisely that theology in Romans chapter 3. So that's number nine, when he makes his soul an offering for sin, for guilt. Verse 11, there are two. He doesn't back off, does he? He just keeps hammering away. First of all, he will make many to be accounted what? Righteous. Righteous. White as snow. Lips cleansed. He's going to make them righteous so that they can live in his presence. That's number 10. And he just says in plain English again in in verse, and he shall bear their iniquities. Just like in verse uh, verse 6. He shall bear their iniquities. Repeats using the same sort of words. And verse 12. It says, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intricate. You don't get many passages that repeat something 12 times, do you? But it's an extremely important passage and one I hope you grow to love more and more. Know well. Good passage to memorise in its entirety if you want to. So what's God doing here? God is getting ready for his son. Now I could go, we haven't even gone through how many prophecies of the actions that were fulfilled, have we? We haven't said that happened, that happened, that happened, that happened. But it's about the same, about 12 again. They were all fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. He went like a lamb to the slaughter. He didn't yabba, yabba, yabba while he's in court. He was silent. And I won't uh, trouble you on thinking you can see that for yourself. The number of times Jesus fulfilled, it was fulfilled in him. But the glorious conclusion, is Jesus rewarded? Verse 12 says it, and it just does it in a very nice way. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. The different translations of this, but the the sense of 
are, the, in fact, the many being his portion. He will be rewarded. And not only that, what is he going to do? He is going to divide the spoil with the strong. He's going to share out that glory. He's going to share out that glory to his people. Even though he was numbered with the transgressors. So with the cause, effect, reward thing, because he poured out his soul, verse 12 in another way of putting it, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, because he did that, he will live and enjoy and share the benefits, the spoil of the conflict that he went through. And then he makes intercession. Note the present tense there. He makes intercession for the transgressors. What does that point to about our Lord Jesus' role today? He's our great high priest who is continually interceding for us. And that's part of the reason why in the, if you, if I read the other little readings from Hebrews 1, um, in many and various ways God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. We'll skip down to when he had made purification for sins. Do you realise those five words describe Jesus' ministry on earth? It's the very shortest summary I've ever heard of what did Jesus accomplish on earth. When he had made purification for sins, what did he do? He sat down. What does that tell you? Mission accomplished. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. So it's the purification for sins was clearly his purpose in coming and he accomplished it and is now honoured for it which is what verse 12 tells us about and the whole book of Hebrews unpacks it in a, whole, in a lot more detail but that's how he says it in brief at the start of, the, of that letter and also in 1 Peter 3.15 for Christ also suffered for sins once for all the righteous does that come out in the text? the righteous? Yep, he, did, he didn't, didn't do any anything bad. He didn't say anything deceitful. The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might do what? That he might bring us to God. The solution to our problem. You remember as, uh, when I was crying as a teenager. I didn't realise it says and he died for all that those who live might live no longer for themselves but for him who for their sake died and rose again and we can look forward to sharing his glory with him can't we just as certainly as he's accomplished his purpose in dying in our place let's pray all loving heavenly father we thank you Thank you for this passage and that it's, Lord, it's the Rio in our faith. Thank you that you give us such strong grounds for knowing that you are the living God and that um, 
Not only do you uh, foretell, but then you carry out to perfection and fulfil every last word um, foretold about you. We praise you, Father, that your Son did that for us and that we, as a result, are declared righteous. Counted holy before you that we can come boldly to you and live with you and enjoy you and know that we're going to be sharing glory with you forever. We just praise you for your goodness to us, not only in the death and resurrection of your son, but, Father, in fulfilling, in foretelling it in such detail so that our faith can be strong. Father, we just pray you would strengthen our faith and help us to rejoice in you and in the gospel that we have. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.